welcome back. It's season three of the Prairie Pod, and I am so excited because we're sitting here in the Muscle Lab in Lake City, Minnesota. And not only are we sitting here with some fabulous muscle peeps, but we also have our brand new co-host. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm trying to introduce you here. Okay. It's going to be epic. Please carry on. Oh, sorry. Okay. Our brand new co-host, Mike Warland. <laughs> that was, that's way overdone. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so much. <laughs> Uh, that was Mike Worland, and I'm a non-game biologist. Um, I'm, I work in southern Minnesota with the DNR, and I'm, I'm, I am excited. I, this, you picked a great first episode. I'm, uh, the topic is awesome. I know. It's muscles, and I'm not talking about the muscles on your little beefy arms there. I'm thank, talking thank about... Gosh. Oh, I know. We don't want to talk about those. We're talking about muscles! Some people call them clams. We're going to learn all about them today because, like we said, we're sitting in the muscle lab, and we're going to let our fabulous guests introduce themselves. Mike. Other Mike. Oh, me first. Okay. Oh, Mike Davis. Uh, I guess I've been here for a long time. <laughs> what else do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into all the things that you know in okay. a minute. Maddie, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Maddie Plata. I'm the propagation biologist, um, one of two of us that are here in Lake City. I'm Bernard Siegman. I'm a malacologist with the Minnesota DNR. For those of you who haven't figured it out, being a malacologist is a fancy name for being somebody who studies muscles. Does not mean a bad ecologist. Or mollusk. No. <laughs> like a mal- 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 I never thought about it. I'm a malacologist. <laughs> right. I have malpractice with my muscles. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. I never gotta, thought about it that way. Make sure nobody gets confused. Yeah, that's good. We don't good. snail people out. That's good. Oh, that's true. We don't leave them out. So today's podcast title is called Muscle Mania, and we are super excited to go through all the things. Now, because... Hulk, Hulk, Hulk Hogan reference, right? Uh, Muscle, do you even know who Hulk Hogan is? Copyright infringement. <laughs> Professional wrestler. Yes, down. Thank you. I do know who Hulk Hogan is. Or, wow. How young do you think I am? Well, we just talked about this. But well, I yeah. just... Hmm. You know, you know. He, was, he was a childhood hero, so... That's good. I, he used to come in my... Didn't he come in cereal boxes? Like a little action figure? Like a little Hulk Hogan action figure? I, don't I was going to say he wouldn't fit in the cereal box. Well, not the actual <laughs> man. Oh, gosh. Because it was muscles. Okay, bring it right back to muscles. Here Muscle we go. Man, yeah, yeah, here you go. <laughs> As we start every season, we're going to start this season with a quote from the father of conservation, the man, the hero. You know him as Aldo Leopold. And so I'm going to read this quote, and then we're going to reflect on it just before we jump into our topic. So conservation is a state of harmony between men and land. What do you think of that? It's beautiful. You'll never hear me say anything. I mean, I love Aldo Leopold. He's he's a bigger hero than Hulk Hogan, okay? Wow. By far. That's big. That's really big. Mm -hmm. Proud of you. The reason we picked this quote to start off this season is because we're kind of thinking about our approach to conservation. And since we're jumping into season three, we've got two episodes under our belt. We really wanted to focus on this theme. So we hope that you're going to see that this quote is really a reflection of the theme through all of season three. where We're trying to demonstrate ways that we can work better with each other so that we can do better not only for the environment, but when you do better for the environment, you're doing better for ourselves. Hello, environment. Okay. So we're going to jump right in. Um, we're going to go round robin here. You guys tell us a little bit about the work that you do here. And we're going to have to talk a little bit loud because we do have some some air noise. So, Mike, tell yeah. us a little bit about your work. Well, we do a lot of things here, actually. Uh, the, the muscle program has a long history that a lot of people probably don't know about. But it started out with uh, doing surveys of rivers to see what kind of 
native mussels were living in them. And uh, since that time, it's we've grown the program, surveyed over 4,000 sites around Minnesota, established 16 long-term monitoring sites where we collect very intense data sets on the mussel community living in the river at these sites. And uh, once we had gained the knowledge, I guess you could say, from running all around, we identified some places where we thought uh, the mussel uh, community could be reestablished. And we knew that there were species missing because when we do surveys, we find empty shells of species no longer living in the river. So it gives us a reference condition for attempting to reconstruct what used to be. And so that's what we've moved into now here at the lab, is trying to uh, work with several different species on right now three different river systems in Minnesota to propagate artificially, like a hatchery kind of thing, propagate and raise and then release mussels back into these rivers. So it's pretty exciting. It is exciting. And yeah. because you mentioned propagation, Maddie, do you want to talk a little bit about your work? He's like queuing you right up. He is queuing me, but he also covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> he also stole all the things you were going to He stole say. my thunder. Yeah. So propagation. So we're, we're artificially in the lab. Um, we're creating this muscle host relationship. Um, we have host fish that we kind of keep on hand in the lab. Uh, anywhere between two and 300 walleye we have on um, in the lab, a couple hundred largemouth bass, and so many species that relate to Bernard's work. And uh, anyways, what we're doing is we're uh, collecting gravid females, or pregnant mamas, and we create this little larval bath um, with our host fish. And essentially then we have a series of systems that we have that actually are specifically designed to collect juvenile mussels. So a juvenile mussel, when it drops off the fish, um, we'll probably talk about the life cycle soon, but um, when they drop off the fish, they're like a pinhead in size. So if you can imagine, that's really really small and um, so what we're doing is we're taking that pinhead size baby muscle and we're growing him up all the way to be a few inches in size and so we have different systems set up that help us um, to maintain their health and um, kind of mimic what the environments they would be at in a river and um, eventually we do put them in the river and yeah it's all about restoration so we're getting there. That's very cool. And you said something that I want to make sure that people understand who maybe are listening to the podcast and are not as familiar with what it means to be a, a host species. So correct me if I say anything wrong here. So most mussels need a host fish, meaning that their eggs attach to the fish and then they emerge. Am I getting this right? Sort of close. Okay. So not so the eggs, much, the not larvae. Well, the larvae. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Let's be clear. Be accurate. There's a whole interesting part of Eggs becoming larvae, too. <laughs> Bernard might be able to tell you about it. It happens. <laughs> Over a few days. Bernard? Right. Yeah. This malacologist um, is, a, is a, a profession that is kind of a mystery to probably just about everybody. Can you tell us more about what that means and what it takes to become a malacologist? Well, I mean, in the broad sense, um, malacology is, you know, anyone who studies mollusks. So... Us, we study freshwater mussels, um, but there's other folks that could study snails or octopi or um, what else? What else are there other squids? Yeah, squids and things like that. Snails. Snails. So it's, you know, it's the other group. So that's a malacologist. Okay. It's you know studying the phylum mollusca. Oh, that's a fun word to say. 
Phyla mollusca. Yes, the second, <laughs> the second most uh, yeah, nice name species. for your kid, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, Phyla mollusca. That'd be easy to spell five in for short, first you know? grade. Not a problem. They identify <laughs> for short. Oh Lord, help us. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, Mike. <laughs> No, there's going to be a lot of laughing today because this is just such a great crowd. You already tell they're super excited about their work they do, and we're excited to learn about it. So I want you to give us a little bit of an understanding of muscle biology. And then before you tell us the background of that, kind of start us off with what's sort of the trend that we're seeing with muscles. And you already kind of hit on it in your intro where you're talking about how there's shells that you've seen. And you know that those species aren't there anymore, but they used to be there. And it gives you kind of this reference point. But what, what's going on with muscles in general in Minnesota? You want the good, the bad, and the ugly. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, the good thing is, is that we still have muscles in many of our streams and lakes. Well, the bad news is that there's a long history of humans having had uh, very negative impacts on populations. It probably dates back to the early days of settlement when someone discovered that some of these produced pearls. And if someone found a pearl in the river that was worth a couple hundred dollars, then there would be a pearl rush and all the poor little mussels in the river would get dragged out and cut open and most of them didn't have anything in them. So there was a lot of destruction. And then a, a guy from uh, Germany discovered that he could make buttons out of the shells that he was finding from the pearl hunters probably. And that started a new industry of button making. And, there were button factories all over the mid, all over the U.S., really, the eastern half of the U.S., the Mississippi, no exception, that actually started in Muscatine, Iowa, and quickly spread all around the world, North America. And so millions upon millions of mussels were dredged or hooked or pulled out of rivers and turned into buttons, and it really knocked the populations way down, which, judging from the harvest records, they were exceedingly abundant in rivers. They, they formed the bottom of the river in places, shells of the ancestors of the mussels living in the river today. And some of them live to be very old. Some species can live to be over 100 years old. Holy cow. So, uh, you know, in Minnesota, we've identified about 51 now, I think, species. 51, I believe. Yeah, with Lampsilla seatmani, which we'll get to later. Uh, Do you think there's a legacy uh, from that destruction yeah, I think there is some legacy out there, but, you today, know. Or it's that the effects are still going on now, you think? Yeah, there's probably is because, you know, we have that large populations are much more resilient to other things that came along later, mm -hmm. which happened. You know, we threw everything in rivers as our population centers grew. And I think Minnesota probably could have the distinction of the first dead zone in the Mississippi rather than the Gulf of Mexico because of the Twin Cities. All the sewage and the Stockyard waste and all the industrial waste went into the river, beginning probably around 1900 or a little before that. Hmm. And uh, so we have this legacy of polluting, and in the meantime, building dams which block fish movement, which is how mussels get distributed in the streams with fish moving, carrying their larvae. But the good news part now, uh, back to the good news, is that uh, the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, and that forced all sorts of changes to improve water. And you know, it took about two decades for that to start to be very noticeable. But beginning in the late 80s to the early 90s, we saw dramatic improvements in some of our river water quality. So essential things like oxygen returned to the river in downtown Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, the ammonia levels from sewage sludge buildup plummeted. And 
voila, the river supports life again, no longer a dead zone. And a lot of that I, I attribute to the citizens who rallied around all that. And it was two women that lived around Lake Pepin, one in Wisconsin, one in Minnesota. They started one of Minnesota's early environmental groups called Citizens for a Clean Mississippi. And their motto was, we can't all live upstream. And, oh, nice. you know, Lake Pepin, when I was a kid, you couldn't swim in it. There were signs posted on the beach because of the bacteria levels were unsafe. And you don't see that anymore. Everybody takes it for granted today. But there was a time when we were in really rough shape. And those two women rallied several thousand people to join them and uh, petitioned legislators in Wisconsin to sue the state of Minnesota over polluting their side of Lake Pepin. And the agreement that came out of that was to separate the sanitary and stormwater systems in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and to upgrade sewage treatment facilities to return what had already been established as minimum clean water standards. And that, that's been done. I mean, not that we don't have pollution issues, but at least life is returned. Yeah. So those things have given us opportunities to try and reintroduce muscles at the sites we're working on now. And there's probably some others we haven't, we can only do so much at a time, you know. So that's kind of the history of where we got to. I forgot what you asked me now. <laughs> that was great. That was, yeah. that was great. <laughs> Tell us a little bit. So... People obviously have an influence on their environment, but you started mentioning, too, the impact that mussels have on their environment. What, why are they so important? So you talked about this where they're basically the foundation of the river, where they're covering the bottom. That's certainly not the case now. So what are they doing for that river system? Well, they get their, their food and oxygen by bringing water from the river or the lake in through their shell and taking out the food and getting rid of things that aren't edible and digesting what is. And in the process of doing that, they actually clear stuff out of the water. So it's the suspended organic matter primarily that they're removing from streams and rivers. And part of what they seem to really have a taste for are E. coli bacteria. So that's what's, you know, and this is recent research. I didn't, we didn't know that when we started doing surveys. We just thought mussels were cool and wanted to know more about them and mm -hmm. got into the conservation. But now this other idea is opening up where, Mussels actually clean our rivers up. If we could clean the rivers up enough to support them again, they'd take it to the next level, probably. So they're like nature's Brita filter. Yeah, kind of. That's somebody, you, you picked that up somewhere. <laughs> that was on some other radio thing. It's like not that. my first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there's some, some things that you know we're hoping to, in the next few years, start working more and more on that aspect of it and see if we can measure some of those and develop some goals for mussel restoration. It would uh, be uh, based on trying to clean up some of the streams around the state. Tell us more about how these animals reproduce. It sounds like a really interesting process that you don't know much about. I certainly I don't know anything about. It's kind of yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy. Um, it's one of the things that makes them unique. So um, you know, mussels reproduce like you know other some other aquatic organisms. Uh, they they spawn. Um, and, uh, the, uh, male muscle will release the sperm into the water and the female will take that in and eggs are fertilized. But at that point they, uh, develop into a larva inside the uh, female's gills where she broods them for a period of time. Hmm. So it's a type of, it's a type of uh, parental care, uh, and it can last for months or just, you know, weeks. So she's holding these larvae inner gills and um, to get them to the next stage, um, all freshwater uh, mussels and the 
unionoida, that order of of muscles, uh, they're they're temporary uh, parasites on primarily fish. So these larvae have to attach to the appropriate um, species or group of fish uh, and go through uh, a metamorphosis. So these larvae will attach, they'll... um, be encapsulated in the in the tissue of the fish. Usually, this is on the gills. I think somewhere I read they're like little Pac-Man. Little right? Pac-Man. They look like well, yeah. So uh, yeah, a little kind of clamp these, on the gill. That's a good point. So the larva, the larva that we work with, um, um, they look just like a little miniature clam. I mean, okay. I mean, it, it does, and it does look like a Pac-Man because they open up and, uh, and and just kind of sit there, you know, when you have them in a petri dish at least. Um, but um, they do look like a little Pac-Man, and they have one. They're very, uh, very, you know, primitive. They don't have all the parts that that a uh, that a uh, a juvenile muscle would have. I mean, they only have like a little adductor muscle that closes the shell. That's, that's all they can do is open it up and close. Um, and when they attach to the the fish, usually, you know, it's usually the gills. Um, they so will, just uh, say again, is it is it species specific? The fish it can be at least. It can be very specific, like a like a certain species of mussel needs a certain species of fish, right? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it can be both. I mean, they're, okay. they're, they're you know mussels can be classified as very host specialists. Um, okay. So they're host specialists. Um, then a good example, we have four genera in Minnesota that can only um, transform to a juvenile stage on freshwater drum. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's, a, it's several species in in the country that are specialists on freshwater drum. That's one, it's the extreme example of that. And uh, there's other ones that, uh, other species that can uh, transform on a, a range of, of fish species. So they're called generalists. Sure. And then you got things every, everywhere in between. Uh, you know, we have species that specialize on catfish. We have sp- species of mussels that specialize on sturgeon and darters and sunfish. Uh, on moon eyes and gold eyes, so it's it's a it, there's very few species of fish uh, in the wild that don't serve as hosts. Now, does it does it do any harm to the fish when they're being parasitized? Yeah. Sorry, I steal your thunder. Well, well I'll, I'll use the, you said you said harm, and I'll say that under normal conditions, no, it's not harmful. Okay. Um, under abnormal conditions, you know, with a very intensive um, uh, batch of larva, we're talking hundreds or thousands, mm. then it can be maybe a little more dicey. So yeah, so um, once they get to that point, we get the, you know these, these larvae get onto the right species of fish, they, uh, over a period of time, go through a metamorphosis. They grow all their parts that are necessary for life, uh, the, you know, the gills, the gut, um, their foot that they use to crawl around, all that stuff grows when they're on the fish. And um, over, uh, you know, it's generally a couple weeks. Uh, that's sort of like the standard, you know, if you're going to throw a number out. But it can range uh, over a, more, a longer period of time, depending on some various things. And um, at that point, they will, uh, when they're fully developed, they will, we sit, use the term release from the fish, but they basically somehow rupture their, their uh, little encapsulation and will just fall to the river bottom. And... Um, Begin life as a free living juvenile, and if everything goes well, they'll grow up to be a big mama or daddy muscle. 
So one of the one, <laughs> one of the coolest things that that we I don't think you, maybe you mentioned it. We could talk more about it though. I saw it on YouTube yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. These things put out a little lure. Some species of mussels put out a little lure to draw their host fish in. Yeah. And for me, it was amazing because this, that little lure that they put out looks exactly like 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 the prey fish that the host fish is going after. I thought it was amazing. This is the thing that really gets people, um, us included, you know, I mean, we are still amazed yeah. by these things. I mean, the classic example is uh, the plain pocketbook, which is a common muscle in Minnesota. They have um, a modified portion of the mantle, which is the part that it basically makes the shell. But this, they get an extension that when the female is brooding the larva, um, she will inflate this little extension that um, uh, looks just as you described, yeah. like a minnow, and she will flap this little minnow underwater. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, um, so, you, know, that you know, this muscle is primary. You know, it's mostly buried, mm. so it's buried. But they, but they extrude this tissue out, and even even beyond that, they'll they'll push that brood. The, uh, so the gills, the, I mean, you can imagine that the, you know, the muscle's gills, it's what it uses to breathe and everything else. Uh, they push that in between the, uh, these two flaps. You got one a left and a right. So you get two little minnows there that are just flapping around mm-hmm. this uh, brood in the gills. And, you know, the, and so, you know, the way that they infect the fish um, is you know, a bass or a walleye see this little minnow. And it's like, I'm going to go after that. And they will attack that fake fish yep. and uh, rupture those gills yeah. and suck in the larva, and uh, there you have it. I thought it was an amazing example of evolution because the, the muscles are blind. Oh, yeah. So this thing has been developed yeah. purely through the evolution. Oh, yeah. It all sounds yeah. very creepy it does. to me, well, you know, it's, to it, be honest. Like, yeah. I mean, well. it's, it's magical, and muscles are wonderful. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but like... It's basically like an alien movie. They're like, like an here, alien. come in, yeah. little fish, and <laughs> there's all my larvae inside of yeah. you now. Ha ha ha. Like, yeah. it's a very kind it's cool. of, it's cool in a very mm-hmm. creepy kind of way. But I like it. I mean, they've done some amazing Well, we things. do have a, a mimic of the alien you speak of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the little snuff box. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a group of muscles that... They decided that it was. Uh, they didn't decide, obviously, but they uh, they actually they actually capture the fish. You know, they're not going to entice the fish to you know come. Well, they do entice them to come bite them, but they set up a little trap. They they part their valves open, um, and uh, sometimes they draw them in with uh, colors or uh, like a little little bitty wiggly you know miniature little. Uh, uh, extensions, but the one that we have, which is the snuff box, the fairly endangered mussel, um, it. it pretends to be a little pebble and it will sit in the in the sediment a female will sit in the sediment and um, the primary host for that muscle is the log perch log perch have a habit of flipping rocks to find food so here's this little rock aka female uh, snuffbox muscle and it will stick its nose to flip this rock and the muscle clamps down on the fish's head and and catches it (laughs) temporarily it it, it inflates a little gasket around uh now you go back go back and let's all watch aliens uh one more time (laughs) um and uh 
it will extrude the larva into the fish's mouth, uh, and then when it's when it's finished, it will let the fish go. Wow. Nature is so weird and wonderful. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Bernard, before we move on to Maddie here, I want you to really quick. So those of you who don't know, the Muscle Lab has grown over the years. And in fact, the first time we came to visit it, we went to a different manufacturing warehouse because it's basically a set of sheds out in Lake City. And so you don't really know where you're going. Mm. And you walk into this distributing warehouse and you're like, oh, I'm looking for the muscle people. And the lady looks at you and she's like, yeah, I don't think that's us. So, <laughs> so we knew we were in the wrong. We knew we were in the wrong spot, but we found it. It's a it's a nice little. I mean, how would you describe it? It's like incognito. A, it's a, yeah, it's a little incognito lab here in Lake City, but doing lots of amazing things. And so, Bernard, I want you to tell us pretty quickly about one of the amazing conservation discoveries that you told us about last time that came out of Lake City right here in this little lab. Well, I think you're talking about the uh, spectacle case, the host for the spectacle case. Um, so that was uh, that was a species uh, that folks have been uh, trying to determine what the host is for quite some time. Not just here in Minnesota, but uh, other labs in the country and, uni- and university uh, folks that study these things too. Um, and uh, it seemed to be this thing, this unattainable, unattainable dis. Uh, discovery to uh, figure out what the the host is for that. That I should mention that 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 a spectacle case is a different fam. It's it's the only muscle we have in Minnesota that's from a different family of of uh, muscles uh, than the than most North American muscles. So it's in the Margaret Tiffordy. So it's so it's different in that way, but um, it's different in some other ways too. But uh, you know we were, you know, intent on figuring out what this was. And, um, you know, it took several years. I should mention that we, you know, collaborate with Mark Hovey at the U of M, but, you know, the, the discovery happened here. And um, we uh, narrowed down on, uh, on what, you know, the possibilities were. I mean, we had tested lots and lots and lots of species. We usually use this, I call it the shotgun approach, where you just, Test as many different species of fish as you as you can, and nothing was happening. They they always rejected uh, the larva. So um, actually, it had to do with part of our survey work. We were on the Saint Croix River, uh, which is where our our only that the only population that we know of, of spectacle case in the state is in the Saint Croix, and um, we had surveyed uh, above and below Saint Croix Falls Dam, and. Um, Historically, you know, the, the, that species occurred um, throughout that that reach of Saint, the St. Croix. But now, with the dam, um, the populations above are dwindling and dying out. And so, um, but downstream, the uh, populations are reproducing and we can find baby spectacle case. So, there's obviously something happening here. And, uh, you know, I thought well, maybe I should get a, a list of fish from above the dam and below the dam to see if there's anything that stands out. And I did that. I contacted Conrad Schmidt, uh, who is a, um, uh, a well-known uh, fish guy in the state. And he just handed me, a, literally handed me a list of historical fish, you know, above and below and current species above and below. And boom, uh, it, was, it was like a it was like a beacon. I mean, the, the, the moon eyes and gold eyes just kind of 
um, popped out right away. One, because we've never kept them in the lab. Uh, I don't think anybody, I can't, I don't know anybody that's worked on them um, elsewhere. They're really hard to deal with, uh, hard, not easy to catch. They die. Hard to keep uh, alive in the lab. Hard to keep alive in the lab. So um, we, you know, focused on that fish species and, uh, or both those uh, fish species and, uh, you know, boom, we figured it out. we, we, you know, it was great. I think Maddie and I were in the lab that day when we act. So, um, you know, it takes a while. This is a species that they don't actually, it takes a well over, it's almost, it's over three weeks, uh, for them to transform. But we knew that, uh, they were still, uh, attached and growing. So these, this muscle actually grows when it's on the, on the fish. And, uh, I knew that, I mean, I just knew that it was going to, um, going to happen. And, um, it just turned out we were on a weekend day, I think, and uh, looked through some samples, and maybe this is the day, and boom, there they were. There was a crawling little baby spectacle case. It, it looked like an alien. I've never seen anything like it. No, they, they look like different do- from other muscles. They are very different. They looked like donut holes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the perfectly round, spherical, little juveniles, and then all of a sudden stick out this foot that looks like a tongue, and you are looking at... Nice. A donut hole. Not that I was hungry that day, but <laughs> <laughs> they became known as to me the donut hole. Little donut yeah. holes. We did a big high five. It was we a did. great day to be a biologist. Well done. Oh, well done. Let's be proud to be a Minnesota. Let's yeah. just be clear. That was a thirty-year-old puzzle that you guys solved here. I mean, you should be very proud of that. Thanks word. to the hundred-year lifespan of the spectacle case. Yeah, yeah. I helped us figure it out too because those ones were above the dam. The dam was a hundred years old. Oh my oh, gosh. So they're dying up. There may not be any left. I know. The biggest challenge really was keeping the thing fish alive. It was a it challenge. It took two years to keep them alive long enough to actually oh. confirm yeah. the juveniles. Yeah. Even though Bernard was really excited after the first year. I was. They yeah. almost yeah. got there and then all the fish died. I knew. I mean, at that point in time, when, when we, even though those fish died, I mean, the development that had occurred is like, yes. this is it's it. It's got to be it. And, uh, yeah, we just got some better <laughs> systems to hold the fish in. And we also went out. Um, so... As I mentioned, there's two species. There's a moon eye and a gold eye. So we had worked on moon eye out of the Mississippi River. And uh, they're particularly difficult um, to deal with. And so I thought, well, maybe we should go get some gold eye, too. I mean, they're the same genus. Uh, it's certainly Actually a unique it, family. Of it is. It is. Yeah, there's only those two species of uh, fish in that family. And um, we went out and got gold eye in the Red River of the North. And they turned out to be... Easy, almost as easy to keep as goldfish. They uh, <laughs> they will they, they survive really well. I mean, uh, as fish as, as fish in a in, a, in, in in captivity go, they do pretty good. Huh. Um, the moon eye, on the other hand, that was they're they're, they're still a challenge. Mm-hmm. We haven't we haven't cracked that. You look way. at them, they roll over dead. You know? yeah. <laughs> but you guys solved it, which Maybe is like that, a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. And we did keep some moon eye alive long enough. To get, I mean, we we, we babied them long enough to get to get them to work. So. And then you got some out of the wild that had larvae on their gills and transformed them in the lab. So mm. that really yes. was the final whammy. This is the host in nature yeah. too. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. That and that's the that's the big home run is yeah. when you get okay. when you can identify that ho- functional that, host. I guess yeah. Say. yeah. Well, this, cool. probably, this probably brings up um, the importance of propagation and restoration with these rare mussels. Can you tell us more about that work, Maddie, and and why that's so important? Yeah, so kind of, if you think about how our program has been structured, we did all of these survey and monitorings, and then Bernard, um, with the host research that has has been able to produce, or 
with all the host research that has been produced at our facility, oh. we're kind of that last piece of the puzzle is this actually artificially raising these guys in culture. And so um, we actually, from the original batch of spectacle case mussels that dropped off fish, um, we have several hundred that are still alive um, in Hudson. They're kind of our last step in uh, juvenile culture in the lab is to put them inside like a, a tote. When I say tote, I literally mean yeah. you put your Christmas trees in here at the end of the season. <laughs> Series of holes drilled in the side and um, we stick them on the bottom of the lake. So we have three sources. Three of our watersheds that we work with all have their own natural setting source where we go and put totes. And there are, I know, at least 250 to 300 um, that are alive from the original spectacle case muscle. And when we looked at them, we pulled the tote this year just to double check to see how they were doing. And they had almost doubled in size. They're, I think, about probably two and a half inches long would be my guess. Mm. I couldn't tell you straight off. But um, propagation is this almost like green thumb type thing. I don't know if you're sure if you own a greenhouse and you can get plants to grow. Well, maybe you should be a muscle biologist. <laughs> um, juvenile muscles, uh, they, you know, you almost understand why they're imperiled. They're not exactly the easiest things to keep alive. Hmm. Um, water temperature, water chemistry, um, too much food, too little food, not enough substrate, too much substrate all affect um, newly metamorphosed juveniles. So when I say newly metamorphosed, that's right off the fish when they're that pinhead size. So mm -hmm. these little baby juveniles are pretty picky. They're prima donnas. And um, what we're doing here is we're working with um, different systems that we have. We have um, two main ones in place. One of them is as simple as a little bit of mud in some river water that we feed once to twice a day. And then we have this a secondary um, or another system that actually like almost mimics a river in that every 30 minutes this pulse of water comes so just imagine you have a cup of water and every 30 minutes you're going to add 50 percent new water so you get this interchange and so that's our second system we have little baby juveniles in the bottom of the cup and we're just supplying a refresh of food and water and um, we've had really good success this is the first year of doing that and then um, for the last three years we've been kind of experimenting with different substrates whether it be sand or mud and where to get the mud. Um, you know, every small aspect uh, can influence muscles either positively or negatively. So, yeah, one big thing with these little guys is they're very sensitive to chloride. Now we have a chloride issue. So, that's something that's on our fear screen, I guess you could say. <laughs> Quit throwing all that salt in the rivers, you know. <laughs> Yeah, Not and I guess we should mention before we before you start getting real excited and thinking about putting a bunch of totes in your house and trying to do this on your own that they like in in you know the you getting really excited about conservation of muscles and you're like I can help I got seventeen totes in my house uh, there are about I don't know quite a few permits that go into this there's quite a few things that we have to do i i use the word few loosely here there are many things that the lab has to do to make sure they're operating safe standards to make sure that they're harming at, you know not harming wildlife and trying to do the best job possible of keeping these critters alive and making sure that they get outsourced sustainably and safely so there's lots of things that you guys have to do and maintain to make sure that this is going on and that you can keep doing it all for the good of the species right because the idea is is that you need muscles and so if we don't have muscles we're gonna have to find a way to get them and so this is one way to do it i was impressed when we toured the lab last time how 
many baby muscles there are and how many you're managing. How can you talk about that just a little bit, Maddie, about like how many different species you're managing and then how many babies they actually make? Because it's kind of like the sea turtle phenomenon, right? If you're a muscle, like you make a lot of babies in the hopes that you have a couple or a few survive, basically. No, that's exactly right. Um, so we have, uh, shoot, 14. How many did we Lost make? track of how many. There's so many. There's so, there's so many. I'd have to count them out on my hand. So we work in three different watersheds. And um, between those watersheds, um, the St. Croix in Mississippi is the one that has the most amount of species. I think there are seven or eight species that we're working with just within the St. Croix, Mississippi. And overall, um, 10 mussel species are held in our lab. And so what it is, <laughs> is it's a little bit of... I almost call it a dance. We have everything color coordinated and um, different mussels, though they may be the same species, they may be propagated from our three different watersheds, the Cannon River, the Cedar River, and the St. Croix, Mississippi are kind of lumped together. And so, you know, we kind of have to balance this, um, where the mussels are coming from as far as their watershed and then where they're growing as juveniles. So when we do a batch of mussels, say we're inoculating, um, 20 walleyes with some mucket glochidia. We kind of hope that that batch should produce maybe 50,000 to 100,000 mussels. I know that number sounds huge. However, in the end, we're, we're really hoping that, you know, well, we'd like to say 50%. I think reality um, is probably in that 10% range are going to survive um, to actually be released. That word, I love that word, glochidia. Is that what you said? Glachidia is their yeah. larval form. That's the larval. That's the form. Pac-Man. That's the Pac-Man. You nice. can impress all your friends now at dinner parties and be like, "Did you know I saw some Glachidia today?" Well, yeah. There's another big word that Bernard <laughs> didn't use. And that's spermat. Spermatozygmata. Right? Spermatozygmata. Wow. That's how the male packages the sperm. Yeah. What about into a little ball? Yeah, it delivers balls. this ball with thousands of sperm cells that explodes <laughs> when it gets inside the female and takes care of all those eggs. You know. Yeah. So you I think gonna, of the. I was just going to point out the name of these things. I love the names of these muscles. They have the coolest names of any group of animals. A I do like their case, names. Creek, Snuffbox. Creek heel splitter. Uh, the fat mucket. The lilliput. There's some other ones. Pimpleback. Monkey face. That's a difficult one we found to work with. We're working on it, though. Monkey face is bound to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. <laughs> a beautiful muscle, though. Especially the Cedar River monkey face are just really oh, yeah. beautiful. But we have to go to Iowa to find them today, and that's why we're trying to get them back in Minnesota. They used to be in the cedar. In the cedar. One thing we should emphasize is the connection between prairie and these muscles. This is a show about prairie, a terrestrial ecosystem, mm -hmm. and we're talking about muscles, which is an aquatic critter. Can you, can you help us understand the importance of prairie for mussels? Yeah, sure. I mean, prairies have rivers as well and streams. And, and uh, actually, the Minnesota River is a giant prairie river. And it, at one point, supported most of the mussel biodiversity in the state of Minnesota. Hmm. It supports migrations of fish from the Mississippi way on out all the way to Black Caparl and beyond. Uh, in fact, there are several species of mussels that have been extirpated. In other words, they don't live in Minnesota anymore and a couple of those were unique to the minnesota river one being the gulf maple leaf uh, and we find old shells of that in the minnesota river and also there are re museum records of another species called the scale shell it has a real thin shell so if 
records don't persist very long, but someone someone to a museum once back in the 1800s. Uh, the sad part is we look today, you know, to the St. Croix for our biodiversity uh, studies of mussels and what they do because it still has 40 some species. Mm. The Minnesota River once had 42 and it's we've lost half of them. Mm. And then some of the tributaries in the very lower part, more than half of the mm. species. So uh, prairies are really essential to the health of prairie rivers. So the grass okay. is good, you know, and uh, I think the, the grasslands, especially alongside streams, are probably be good for fish and for mussels. Yeah, I think I read that. So mussels, are, some people are saying they are the most imperiled group of wildlife. Yeah, the, and then, the, you know, the, the first four categories of wildlife that were in that study are all aquatic dependent species. Huh. And, you know, includes mussels, snails, and, uh, you know, things like crayfish and uh, amphibians that all have a connection to water. And then we, over the times, you know, we've seen a lot of emphasis on things like birds and butterflies, but we see them. They flutter around and right. come with the bird feeders. We don't have mussels crawling up to our bird feeder to show us their lures. You know, mm -hmm. you have to get underwater to see that stuff. But that doesn't mean they're not important. And what we've discovered in studying this over the last couple of decades is that they really are important. And yeah. not only that, they're super fascinating. Right. And provide a lot of value to the ecosystems that we do appreciate. So if you could give me like three examples of that value. Go. Of the mussels, you mean? Yeah. No, Rapid well, fire I, mussel value. I think one of the value that comes to my mind first is the, the fascination value of Good. bringing kids to understand the interconnections of nature and the interrelationship between what we do on the land and what happens in water. And, and number two would be what the mussels are doing in the water, which is filtering it and cleaning it and creating habitat, number three, for other species, like other fish and macroinvertebrate. The studies show there's more species and larger biomass of aquatic insects where mussels are hmm. compared to where they're not. And if you have more of those kind of critters, uh, they're grazing the algae off the mussel shells and the rocks and the fish come in to eat the bugs and people come in to eat the fish. So, you know, it's all a roundabout thing. And if we can keep the mussels in the river, they will support themselves because they have this loop. The fish come, they get inoculated with the larva of the mussel, and they come back to the mussel bed to feed and keep the mussel bed going by dropping juveniles on it. If we can get some dams removed here and there, we would actually reestablish the migratory pathways of these fish, and we could restore even more mussels. Hmm. That's a long-term project. I think in the meantime, we're going to try and do it the hard way, the way we're doing it here. Bernard, did you have something yeah, well, I was going to mention it. It goes a little bit even beyond that because, you know, the uh, mussels are capturing this food in the water column and the uh, uh, aquatic insects that are eating these this deposited food, they emerge and then they fly into the prairie. And oh, other yeah. things in the prairie like Good birds point. and Good spiders point. and things like yeah. that eat that. I mean, eat people have tracked. Yeah, they have tracked. Yeah, they've tracked That's the true. nitrogen. Uh, Good that, job, Bernard. That has, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're doing just I just, I, just, I just read that just recently. So it's uh, like he's a scientist or something. something. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Some kind of ecologist. This like brings beyond a whole malecology. I know this brings a whole song into mind. It's a circle. Okay, well, that's true. So look at the mayfly hatches on the Mississippi. We could talk about mussels with you guys forever, and yes, it's I mean because it's very well, it's a great pot. 
and because it's amazing and it's fascinating and that's why i'm so excited that this is our first episode of season three but we are going to move to our let's science section This is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And of course, we would be remiss if our topic today wasn't muscles. Nah. I just want to like sing it every time. Muscle, muscle, Please muscle, 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 muscle. Oh. Okay. So we're going to start with Mike. Uh, tell us a little bit about your pick and make sure you give us the title of the paper. Oh, did I pick a paper? I don't recall. You uh, did. I'll, I'll say it. I'll help you out. Okay. It's The Natural History and Propagation of Freshwater Mussels by Coker et al. from 1921. A throwback, if you will. Oh, yeah. Why did you pick this paper? It was one of the more comprehensive things done up to that point, anyway. And I read it from front to back when I was uh, working as a, a fish creel clerk for the fishery section of the DNR in 1986 or seven, I guess. And it helped spur my interest in the muscles and and the connection between fish and the movement of fish. Because a lot of what he was talking about was the first dam on the Mississippi River at Keokuk, Iowa. It's a big hydroelectric dam before they built dams for barges and stuff. And it blocked significant migratory pathway of fish. And some of them were the only host for the some of the mussels up here. Ebony shell and elephant ear, sort of our poster child muscle species and probably the Gulf maple leaf would fall into that category. But the, the skipjack herring are host fish for ebony shell and elephant ear. Their life, they are a potadromous fish. Everybody's heard of anadromous like salmon that come in from the ocean spawn. Well, these fish swim up river in the spring all the way out to the prairie rivers, spawn in lakes like Lacaparle. And uh, the babies grow up during the summer and everybody migrates south because they can't handle our winters. They die up here in the winter. So they go way down below the mouth of the Ohio River or down in that region to spend the winter. That's what I would be opposed to. Yeah, and now they can't come back up again uh, because the dam blocks the pass. Unless they know how to pull a little cord on the lock chamber and lock around the dam, they don't get up here anymore. And so the mussels have died out. When Bernard and I first started doing this stuff, we could still find a few ebony shell mussels in the St. Croix River. But the last time or two we've looked, all we could find were a few old shells. So. We think we've lost them until we can restore that migration. That species isn't going to go back here. And at one time, it was the favored shell for making buttons out of. So, so if we ever want to start another button industry, we better get those fish moving. Bernard, tell us about your pick. Yeah, um, my pick is um, a book by Wendell Hag. Uh, he posted in 2012. North American Freshwater Mussels, Natural History, Ecology, and Conservation. Um, it's a handsome book. It is a beautiful book. You know, I guess maybe you can judge a book by its cover. There you go. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, because I, I love this book. It's um, his Bible. I, Just face <laughs> I go to, if I need to know something or if I, if, if I'm sort of like, you know, thinking about something, I'm not really sure about that. I go right here. Um, and, uh, and check here first. Um, so what, you know, Wendell did, um, you know, a really good job of synthesizing all the information, you know, beyond what, you know, before and beyond what Coker and those guys did. Um, 
in terms of uh, muscle biology and diversity. It, it's specific to North America, but it does talk about um, some European stuff. And um, it's just got some excellent uh, sections on uh, the uh, historical um you know, very colorful folks and, uh, and some of the history of, of freshwater mussels, uh, in the country, uh, mussel shoals and folks like Constantine Raffinesque. He talks about that, but then he goes into lots of other aspects about, um, their life history and, and conservation, um, and the things that make them unique. And it's very comprehensive. Uh, and then he also, um, uh, came up with some new concepts uh, on how to how to think about um, mussels. Um, you know, before really before this, folks thought about mussels um, as being, you know, they're all the, they're all, they're kind of all the same. They talk mm-hmm. about mussels as you know in, in general terms, and that could be farther from the truth. Mm-hmm. We have three hundred species in North America, and. Uh, uh, among the the higher groups and even 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 among species, they do their they, they live their lives very differently, and he he pulled that that information together uh, to come up with uh, a new concept of how um, uh, muscle assemblages are are structured structured in rivers, which is really a difficult thing to do. Hmm. Um, so I would recommend this to anybody who uh, is going to be. Thinking about studying muscles or just interested in muscles in general? See, muscle mania is a real thing. That's we right. think that you guys might be catching it. Mm-hmm. Maddie, tell us about your pick. Yeah, I just kind of went for um, my go-to question book as far as propagation goes. So this is uh, a fairly new book, um, Freshwater Muscle Propagation for Restoration. It's a kind of a compilation of uh, several authors and propagation biologists from across the country that finally all got together and put their knowledge in one place. And historically, it was a class offered out in uh, West Virginia for federal employees. It was this grand booklet where um, federal and state agencies could come and learn about freshwater mussels. And they finally decided, well, hey, maybe the public should know about this too, and and really made this accessible to everybody. So it's something that we just look at for new ideas on propagation um, and really just kind of gives us insights into to other people's ideas, opinions, etc. I like when science is collaborative. I think that's my favorite thing about science. We all pool our knowledge together and we're working on solving these puzzles. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike? Take a hike. I think I will. Or I think I might actually take a swim, or maybe oh. a wade, or a float. It's hard to say. But because we're doing prairie streams and mm-hmm. mussels, uh, I might want to take a float. So this is the part of the podcast where we introduce you to some of your fabulous public lands. Because yes, you are a landowner. All of you. Everyone in the state of Minnesota. You have amazing public land holdings. And we want to make sure that we highlight everybody's picks for today. Of course, we limit you to only one. And because it is a muscle-themed podcast, you guessed it. We ain't hiking on land. We hiking in the water. So <laughs> bring your waders. It's gonna be it's gonna be a fun ride. So Mike, tell us a little bit about one of your favorite places. And I do want to mention before let's see, before you even go, that Close to this place is the Otter Tail Walk-In Access number 352. So that is the public site that you could visit adjacent to this stream. Oh, and if you do, you can step into the water, slip on a mask and a snorkel. 
and see what's on the bottom and the, and the stretch of the otter tail that I was am interested in. There's well over 100 animals per square meter of river bottom. Wow. And they're, it's like an underwater garden. The otter tail river is very clear. And there are millions of these freshwater mussels. Some of them are quite large, the size of your hand held out flat. And they're all filtering and doing their thing. And there's all sorts of greenery in there. It really is a garden. If you look closer, there's aquatic insects crawling around on the shells. You might see a baby mud puppy crawling around looking for something to eat. Uh, if you aren't too too crazy and making too much commotion, you'll see a lot of fish as well. The Otter Tail River's full of fish. So that's one of my favorite places just to go drift down the river watching the wildlife come come by. This, this specific location um, is just east of this walk-in area, number 352. Yeah, it's upstream of Fergus Falls. Upstream of Fergus Falls, yep. okay. Yeah, and remember, when you're accessing the stream, you don't want to be trespassing on private land, so make sure that you're finding yeah, a public... If you get in at the bridge, you can float down. There you then go. Then you have to walk back. That's the downside. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bad part about any yeah, type yeah. of river recreation. You have to get <laughs> back. But you can hop, throw a canoe in and go to the next public access and then stop along the way here and there. Too. Take a buddy. Yeah, take two a buddy. Cars. That's always that's a good idea in case you choke on some water or something. <laughs> <laughs> We're all about safety here at the DR. That's right. Yeah. Watch out for the bison and hers. No, wait, they're gone. Oh, they're gosh. Gone. Bernard, tell us about your pick. Yeah. Um, so mine is Blue Mounds State Park. Um, yeah, I haven't visited a lot of prairies, but we actually went out uh, to this park to survey for um, the pond mussel, which is a species that that in Minnesota lives only in the Missouri River system. And um, at, at the park, the, the dam had needed some uh, repair, or actually, I guess it actually had, the, the river actually bypassed the dam because it blew out during a flood. Mm-hmm. Um, so they w- wanted to know whether or not there, was any, there were any uh, uh, pond mussels there. And so this beautiful prairie, I mean, here it was, it was just beautiful. We, drove, we were driving up to this, and, and uh, it was a great time of the year. I think it was in June, and turned out that the prickly pears were blooming. I had not seen that. And I thought, wow, they got cactus out here, too. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that's why I picked that, because it's just a, yeah, it's a very beautiful park. Nice. I agree. Maddie, tell us about your favorite place. Ooh. Um... I think I have to go to, to the upper part of the Cedar River. Um, and I say that I don't have, I'm like Bernard, I don't have a lot of experience with prairies, but um, this part of the upper Cedar uh, north of Austin, kind of by Blooming Prairie, is really unique for, for us as mussel biologists because there is a species of mussel there, the Three Ridge. And it's unique because it's found in the headwaters of the Cedar River, but kind of south of Austin and into Iowa, this population um, either is diminished or, or has been completely extirpated. And so with our lab, we've actually partnered with Iowa and we are use, using the Three Ridge mussels from the Upper Cedar as a propagation effort to hmm. restore Three Ridge mussels in Iowa. So we have this really big connection with kind of restoring mussels in Iowa, utilizing Minnesota populations. And so that's just one example um, cool. that, that we have. I love that. Yeah. As yeah. always, this is a little bit different, but for most of your public lands, you can find them on the DNR Recreation Compass. You just put that into your Google machine and type in DNR Recreation Compass, and you can find all of these things. Um, we will also have them up on our website so that you can find them since some of them are bridge access. Gosh, it's been fun today. I oh, mean, I am a muscle maniac. 
You're a muscle maniac. You've been waiting to say that this whole time. Yeah, Let's be true. honest. It's true. Like, yeah. you had that one canned. I but really, I just, I have gained a new appreciation. I'm a wildlife biologist, but I knew very little, if anything, about muscles. And they're and fascinating. They are. And we are learning so much, so many things. And we're going to continue on this theme next week on Prairie Tuesday, where we're going to be learning even more about prairie streams. We're going to talk with Brooke Hawker and Luther Odlin, who do a lot of fantastic river restoration work. And we're going to talk, we're going to go right back to Blue Mountain State Park and talk about the restoration there and all the benefits we hope that it's having. And we're even going to learn about some of the scary snake, the great snake save of 2019 that happened. I guess I shouldn't say it was scary. It was actually pretty amazing. But some of the stuff they did to save hibernating snakes. So you're not going to want to miss it. As always, you can find all the resources we talked about today, including the take hikes and the let science on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. All right, you guys ready? On three. Clam fam! Okay, on three. One, two, three. Clam fam!